So we're going to continue on in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 24, and I intend to cover all of Acts chapter 24. Um, there's not, it's not a long chapter, but it does have a lot in it, a lot, a lot of material in it. A lot happens in this chapter. And the title of my sermon is Paul Before the Governor. This is one of the things you notice with Paul's final years of his life. He spent an immense amount of time with the Roman magistrates talking to them about Christ, Christianity, no doubt, their duty, their duties as magistrates, according to the Word of God, no doubt about that, in my mind. Because Paul was the type of man who applied all of God's Word to every area of his life and to every area of life, as did most all the churchmen, early churchmen did. So why don't we stand up, we'll have a word of prayer, and then... um, I'll go through here. I'm not going to read anything because we're going to go through verse by verse. Lord, we rejoice in you and thank you for this time that we have in your word. We ask that you glorify yourself through it, that you help me to declare that which you've given me to proclaim. And Lord, that you would light a fire in the hearts of your people to be faithful and true to you with the days you've given them in the earth. I ask that you be glorified, Father, here now in the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. By the way, the sermon I did last week, Bostock, The Continued Evil of the Supreme Court, is posted online at sermonaudio.com if you want to listen because you weren't here or you want to share it with other people. So here's where we're at in Acts chapter 24. Just to remind you, the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, who interposed for Paul three times, sent Paul to Governor Felix. That's where we're at. There was an assassination attempt against Paul in Jerusalem. So the commander sent Paul to Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of Judea, in order to see the governor. To take the case there, higher up the food chain. And verse 1 says, Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator, named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So Ananias shows up with an orator. You might be wondering, why an orator? Well, to impress the governor. An orator can be very beneficial in a legal proceeding or a public policy matter. So they bring this orator, Tertullus. But Governor Felix was no slouch. He was an incredibly wicked man, but he was also astute politically. He would have noticed Ananias was not talking, but had this orator doing the talking for him. He would have also noticed that the Jews brought no witnesses of the actual allegations, but simply had this spokesman, this orator. We know historically that there was an important reason for this. Roman law regarding legal proceedings did not take kindly to false allegations. You would be subject to heavy penalties. Heavy penalties could be laid also against those who abandoned their allegations and charges. No witnesses, as Felix is sitting there, suggested that they had nothing against Paul that could stand up in a court of law. That's what Felix understood as the governor sitting there. Verses 2 and 3 says, And when he was called upon, Tertullus, 
began his accusation saying, See that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. So here you have nothing, you can't put it any other way, but rank brown-nosing. Rank brown-nosing. It was common fare at this time to give a short praise to the authority you were addressing, but this went far beyond that. This was just brown-nosing. What Turtleus describes here was so far from reality, the Jews did not enjoy great peace and prosperity under Governor Felix. And many of the Jews that gathered at this proceeding would have been shocked to hear the high priest's mouthpiece, this orator, say these glowing things because you can still say words of niceness and decency to someone without, yeah, just making stuff up out of thin air, saying stuff that's absolutely so far from the truth. Felix was actually born a slave and was freed by Antonia. Antonia was the mother of the emperor Claudius. So um, Felix became a good friend of the young emperor Claudius. And in 52 AD, Claudius appointed him as governor of Judea. To understand a little bit about Felix, the historian Tacitus said he was, quote, a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave, unquote. In other words, he was a crafty, cruel ruler. And history bears that out. Josephus wrote a lot about him. Felix's cruelty, coupled with his practice of bribes, which we'll even see here in Acts chapter 24 as we continue, led to a great increase of crime in Judea. Did you notice there's a great increase of crime in many cities where these riots were just let go to continue on unabated? It's because if you give lawless men a pass and the magistrates don't do their duty and suppress evil, it encourages lawless men in more evil. The period of his rule, Felix's rule, was marked by internal feuds and disturbances, which he put down with severity. Historians say that during his governorship, insurrections and anarchy increased throughout Palestine. His brutal tactics to put them down and regain control alienated most of the Jewish population. So when Tertullus is going up saying all this stuff, yeah, they're not, they're not liking that. The Jews aren't liking that. Felix was married three times, the last time to a Jewish woman named Drusilla, who we'll talk a little bit more of later on in the sermon. So Turtleus brown noses the governor, and though this was customary, it was way off from reality. It was also customary for the praises of the ruler you were addressing to be short. You didn't go on and on. You kept it short, so verse 4 says, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. And then he says this in verse 5, For we have found this man a plague. you got to give this guy high points for power words. <laughs> we find this man a plague. That's a power word. You're demonizing, marginalizing, and goblinizing 
someone when you say, this man is a plague. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader, power word, ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So Tertullus paints Paul to Felix as yet another insurrectionist. Another insurrectionist. That's that's some heavy allegation there. Verse 6 goes on and says he then, pardon me, he even tried to profane the temple. And believe me, the Roman magistrates all know how bad that is because the Jews go crazy if anything wrong happens at the temple. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. Of course, this is an outright lie. Paul did not try to profane the temple. You may recall back in uh, chapter 21, I believe it was, or 22, uh, through gossip, it was thought that Paul had brought Trophimus, the Greek, into the temple. And of course, that he did not do that. Have you ever been accused of wrongdoing that you didn't do? You ever been lied about? Ever been accused and lied about where not only your reputation could be harmed or destroyed, but where you're looking at great legal ramifications like years in prison or even death? Ever happened to you? I know one time here in Milwaukee, I was arrested and I was charged with a felony for assaulting police officers and I was looking at 20 years. And the police had just lied outright and said that I had attacked them. When the truth was, they had attacked me. Two of them jumped on my back. They're heavy. I fell down. They came down with me. That was the assault. Of course, by the time it got to the prosecutor, it had been embellished a little bit, and I had come at them, which was not true. My back was to them. So what happened next was, We had someone who was way out on the street, probably 75 to 100 yards away, who had a video camera. This is back in 1991, I believe. And um, remember them telephoto lenses they would put on those things? You could come way in and you had, this thing was pretty big back then, right? It wasn't your phone. It's like this big honking deal. And they came all the way in, and they had captured that all on film. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> so by the time I was brought into the prosecutor two days later out of the county jail, he had the three officers who lied about me sitting there, and he had me, and he read what they wrote, and then he played the video. And then he castigated the officers. And then he dropped all the charges against me. I was looking at 20 years. That's how much they ever. Here in this situation, Paul was looking at a death sentence. The lies they were making up about him was a death sentence. You're an insurrectionist? That's a death sentence. And that's what they're trying to portray him as to the governor. If you disturb the, what was known as the Pax Romana, anybody know what that is? The Peace of Rome. Exactly. If you disturbed the peace of Rome, that was bad. (laughs) You were in trouble. And that's what insurrectionists did 
Because if you disturb their peace, what you were disturbing was the status quo that they had established in their empire, the institutions, the power structures, the rich, the poor. You could be executed. They did not take kindly to anyone who wanted to upset the status quo. And haven't we already seen that in the book of Acts here? Regarding both the Jews and the Roman magistrates. They have no tolerance for the status quo being messed with. And what did Christianity do? It messed with the status quo. When Christianity comes in, it confronts the evils, idols, and tyrants of a culture or nation. It doesn't just go along to get along like this whore form of Christianity we have in America today. No, it confronts. It ends up in conflict. It takes the power bases to task, the institutions to task. There's a new king's rule, and we declare it. It's Christ's rule. It's God's law. It's his word. Josephus says Felix crucified numerous men who had started insurrections during his governorship. So this was a heavy allegation against Paul. Christianity has a history of upsetting the status quo. That's until about 150 years ago, where Christianity became nothing but the sustainer of the status quo for rich men and status. And this, of course, has happened in other centuries throughout the history of Christianity. There's always been rulers who use religion and have used Christianity for their own ends. But true Christianity confronts the evils, idols, and tyrants of cultures and nations of their day. Verse 7 says, But the commander Lysias, this is Tertullus still speaking, But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Don't you love that? He came by. You guys had a riot going on. (laughs) You know? And he took him out of our hands. They were beating Paul to death. (laughs) So... Turtle had a little different perspective on the situation than Lysias did, didn't he? Remember what Lysias wrote? Lysias was like, I rescued Paul. I learned he was a Roman citizen, and I rescued him. And the truth of the matter is, that isn't true either. <laughs> he didn't know Paul was a Roman citizen until after he took him and was already preparing to scourge him. So both of these men fudged on the truth in their accounts. And I have to tell you, my whole reading of history, overwhelmingly so, most men who have been involved in religious leadership or in civil leadership tend to be dishonest, self-absorbed men. Crafty, evil, wicked men. You know, you know why we call Alfred the Great Alfred the Great? Because he was unusual. <laughs> he was actually honest and wanted to do right in the sight of Christ, he actually carried the law of God with him everywhere he went, just like King Josiah did in the Old Testament. We call him great because he wasn't like most of these scumbags. And of course, most of American Christianity wants to sit there and say, we are so spiritual, we have nothing to do with politics, it's so dirty. That's precisely why Christians should be involved in politics. In civil government matters, 
because it's so dirty. And Christianity needs to bring Christian thought to that realm of life. So it goes on here in verses 8 and 9, and it says, that he commanded his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining these things were so. Understand, this is what we call grammatically a presi. A presi. In other words, it's a summary of a speech, a summary of what took care took place here. It isn't all the details. Luke doesn't give all the details. So Tertullus gives his great oratory speech, and the Jews are all like, that's right, that's right. (laughs) They're all like giving their assent. So now Paul gets to speak. Verse 10, it says, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Notice here that Paul does not brown nose. Did you notice that? Turtleist brown noses, Paul doesn't brown nose. Governor Felix was a very public figure and his character was well known. Paul simply refers to him as a judge. A judge of this nation. And I keyed in on that when I read this verse because I have had many proceedings before judges in America in my life mostly here in Wisconsin because of my acts of interposition for the preborn, wherein we would block the doors of the death camps with our bodies in an effort to prevent their murder. I noticed when I first went to court all those years ago that all the lawyers and others referred to the judge as your honor. Even my fellow rescuers, interposers, they would use that term, your honor, when they were addressing the court. And I had a problem with that. I could not in good conscience do it. I could not in good conscience say it. I knew these judges were dishonest career men for the most part who would uphold man's wicked laws and court opinions to see that the murder of the preborn continued, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't say your honor. And I early on heard one lawyer refer to the judge as judge. <laughs> rather than your honor. And I determined then, that is the term I would always use when addressing them. Judge. And that is what I did. Just like Paul does here. Judge. Amen? Not your honor. And notice Paul is defending himself. Right? He's defending himself. He says here, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So Paul's defending himself, and that is what I did. I almost always defended myself in the court. I learned early on that the whole system was in cahoots with one another. Okay, When you go into the court system, when you go into our legal system, when you go into our prison system, it's awful. Okay, granted, it's one of the best in the world. Understand that. We actually have the at least the semblance of the rule of law. Most nations don't even have that. It's all bribery. It's all who you know. It's you could disappear and never be heard of again. 
I thank God for what good Christian men did establish in Western civilization regarding the judiciary. But understand, it's gotten really, really bad over the last half a century to a hundred years. And that's because we've thrown off the law of God as the foundation of law in Western civilization, and we've replaced it with the state making up whatever whim seems to fit their thinking, what should be right, what should be wrong. So when you go to jail and you see women guarding men, that should bother you. So that's what the feminists want. It's what the leftists want. It's what everybody goes along with. Most of Christianity has been totally, has totally embraced egalitarianism. They followed the world on that, and it's a great death to us all in our culture. And another thing that you'll notice besides that, you'll notice that the police, the prosecutor, the judge, and even the defense lawyers were all friends. They would play golf together. You'd listen to them talk about it. They would go out to eat together. This is the guy representing me? He's friends with the judge, the prosecutor, you know? That should bother you. Then you learn that every lawyer takes an oath to the court first. Their oath is to the court, not to their client, not to the person they're supposed to be defending. It's to the court. And there's boatloads of lawyers who've let things slip because they don't want to get on the bad side of the court. They all meet out at the same Wisconsin clubhouse together and have nice prestigious meals together and get together on weekends in each other's backyards and, you know, drink their martinis. It's disturbing to watch, and I watched it all. And so I defended myself. I'm dumb, um, almost always defended myself. Verses 11 and 13 says, Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, verse 11, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd either in the synagogues or in the city, for nor nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. Listen, Paul knew, Paul knew, They could not prove these things against him. He saw they had no witnesses when they came in. That they had brought this orator to try and convict him. Paul was wise. He wasn't like your average American minister today who lives in his ivory tower and thinks so highly of himself and that he wants everyone to just think he's the most wonderful thing since sliced bread. He was a street preacher who went out and rubbed shoulders in the crowd. He had been beaten. He had been mistreated. He saw men for what they were. And he was wise because of it. Just as he exploited the differences in the Sanhedrin in our last chapter, which most churchmen of our day excoriate Paul for, only because they've never been out in the public square fighting in the field for our Lord and his kingdom, but have spent their lives in the ivory tower debating about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That's about the relevance of what they have to talk about when you see what's going on in our nation. He now exploits their having no witnesses at this hearing. 
Just as he exploited the situation before them in the last chapter, he now exploits the situation of them not having any witnesses here. Look at verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law of the prophets. So he makes clear in verse 13, they cannot prove these things. He knows they can't. They don't even have any witnesses. So Paul addresses every accusation made against him, including his being a part of, as it says in verse 14, the way. Remember, this term is used to identify the early believers. Not the church, they were known as the way. Tertullus says of the Christians, a sect of the Nazarenes, while Paul himself refers to the Christians as the way. Notice here in verse 14, Paul does not bog Felix down with the minutiae of the differences between what Judaism believes versus Christianity. Rather, he simply states that he worships God, and then look what he said. Quote, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets, unquote. True Christianity does not impugn the law or the prophets. It does not denigrate or degrade the law or the prophets. It sees the goodness of both and makes application to our present day and full understanding of Holy Writ, Christ having come. So unlike the current popular, prevalent form of Christianity in America today and throughout the West, which throws his law under the bus, we see something much different coming from Paul. Verse 15 says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This is a dig at the Sanhedrin that were gathered there. Paul's probably thinking maybe they'll begin to fight amongst themselves again right in front of Felix. I know he was thinking that. I believe he was thinking that. Remember the division? Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees did. Verse 16 says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Most Christian men in our day only want a conscience without offense toward men. (laughs) They totally... Forget the God part. I want to be liked. I want to be thought well of. I want to say what people want to hear. I don't want to be the guy who has to tell them the things they need to hear. You're not good to God and you're not good to your fellow man if you remove the part about having conscience towards God and just want to have a conscience towards man. You're a worthless dog at that point. And that's what most Christian men in America are. Worthless dogs who long ago decided to sell their soul for a pot of porridge, the porridge being I like being liked. They love it. The fact that he says here in verse 16, to have a conscience without offense toward God and men, does not mean if you're a good Christian, you will not offend people. Remember, Paul himself wrote the gospel itself is an offense. Romans chapter 9, verse 33, Peter also quoted that, that the gospel is an offense. If you want to live an offense-free Christianity, you're not living Christianity. It does not happen. It's an impossibility. You're declaring the truth of God's word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Cuts to the marrow and the bone. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
And you want to be liked? Your duty is to God first, to declare what He wants known to men. Not to be liked. And you don't need to be needlessly offensive, and I've met Christians that are needlessly offensive. But you do need to be honest with all men. You do need to tell them what they need to hear. Not just what you think they would like to hear. Nothing wrong with telling them something they would like to hear that you ascertain. They'd probably like to hear that as long as you get to the things that they need to hear. Most Christians never do. It's sad to watch. Romans 9.33, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Christ is an offense. Paul is talking here about needlessly offending men. This does not mean that we don't tell men the truth. Christianity has perverted what is said here by Paul to mean we should never offend men. And they don't. They have no conscience towards God. They have made being liked paramount in their minds. They sacrifice truth on the altar of being liked. When you have a conscience toward God and man, brothers and sisters, you declare the truth. You can't help but not do it. And if you don't do it, you feel bad after the opportunity has passed. Verse 17 says, Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. This is referring to Romans 15. I've talked about this before. One of the main reasons Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem was to bring this offering to the believers there. To bring unity amongst the Gentile and Jewish believers. And here he mentions it in verse 17 before the governor. Verse 18 and 19, it says, In the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither was neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. He See, he had noted there were no witnesses. <laughs> Those guys hadn't come with Ananias and the Sanhedrin. Just this guy, Turtleus. And here he sticks it right in their face. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. And believe me, Governor Felix already had noted that in his mind anyway. Paul points it out to everybody gathered there. Here in verse 19, Paul notes the absence of his accusers and witnesses against him. And then Paul sticks it to Ananias and the Sanhedrin, who were trying to hide behind Tertullus, and he says in verse 20, Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. At this point, Ananias and them other guys... They just want to get out of Dodge with their heads still attached to their bodies. You have no idea. You have no idea. Paul is just... He wasn't like your average churchman today. It would be like, Oh, my accusers. I'm just going to pray for them. Poor misguided souls that they are. They're phony. You know what I learned about men who act weak? Who act... That way, like your average American churchman, 
They have more hate in their heart towards God and their fellow man than anyone. Paul had love for God and love for his fellow man. He knew exactly what these men were, and he took them to task for it. He behaved like a man. In American Christianity, you have to take your pants off and put on a little flimsy skirt. That's what they want. That's why they wear their masks and sit behind their little computers and say, oh, do you think we should obey the state or not? Should we not meet? Should we not wear masks? I, I don't see any verse that says the state can't tell me to wear a mask. It's disturbing. They're not even men. You want to know why so many men haven't come to Christ? Because of the form of Christianity that we have. And thanks be to God, He's judging it. It's going to be driven into the dirt. Their little pietistic world is coming to an end. While they've sat in their isolation in their ivory towers and allowed it all to happen under the guise of we love them. Liars! Liars all. Verse 21 says, Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Paul is going to make sure he brings something to the table that's going to further his interest in presenting the gospel to Felix and the Roman magistrates gathered there. Paul, again, at the same time that he's doing that, tries to get them to start fighting right in front of Felix yet again, but the Sanhedrin doesn't take the bait regarding the resurrection comment. At this point, they know their dishonesty is known. They just want to make it out of town with their heads still attached to their bodies. Verse 22 and 23 says, But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, why would that be so? Because his wife was Jewish? Having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Unquote. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So he knew about the way. His wife is Jewish. It's his third wife. He also knew about the way from other Roman magistrates. No doubt. Word had spread about this group, these Christians. And remember, this was true Christianity Paul was involved in, which turns the world upside down. It was not the ghettoized version we have today that sits in the corner and waits for the flight out. Oh, I'm so glad it's getting worse every day. That means, man, we're leaving. I can just watch my clock. It was not this treasonous, whoring form of Christianity prevalent in America today. Felix says he will make a decision when Lysias the commander comes down, but the truth is Lysias is never going to come down <laughs> to Caesarea. 
By the way, do you all know that Caesarea was north of Jerusalem, but they use the term come down. I've tried to drive this into your head so you understand that. Why do they say come down to Caesarea? Because you always go up to Jerusalem. <laughs> That's why. Remember that. Okay, three things always to remember. The temple will never be rebuilt, number one. Number two, Scotus never will undo Roe v. Wade. And number three is you always go up to Jerusalem, even if you're headed south. All right? And historically, we know he never did come. Felix throws some good Paul's way. He throws some good Ananias's way. Again, he's a crafty politician. Ananias and the Sanhedrin think they still might get Paul, and Paul is kept in custody, but with liberty. It was a house arrest. And Paul was going to get an all-expense state-paid trip to Rome before it was over. All to teach the Roman magistrates about God's law, word, and gospel. Wow. Verses 24 through 26 says, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about, Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Felix Andrew Silla did not care for Paul's brand of preaching. Did you pick up on that here? They were upset by it, no doubt offended by it. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. She was the youngest daughter of King Agrippa I, who was a dog. He was betrothed to King as she was betrothed to King Azizus, who was the king of Emesa, which was a really small kingdom in Syria. He was actually going to convert to Judaism just to marry her. But Drusilla cast her eyes upon Felix and dumped King Azizus. Historians tell us she loved Felix's ruthlessness and power as much as he loved her beauty. She quickly accepted his offer of marriage. As one historian put it, quote, Neither his birth as a slave, his Roman paganism, nor her Jewish scruples deterred her from what she considered a higher station in life. And though the other guy was a king, the governorship was a higher station in life compared to that king. This, of course, is not how Christian women are to think or behave. Right, sisters? Nor... Are those the type of women Christian men should pursue? Right, Christian brothers? Women like this are a dime a dozen, men. Look for something better, single brothers, and be something better for Christian women till you find the one the Lord has for you. And then for all of your union, as husband and wife, be the better man. Verse 25 says Felix was afraid from Paul's preaching. 
What did Paul preach? Verse 24 says, Paul presented Christ to them, the Christian faith, and no doubt faith in him. But as he reasoned to them about righteousness, something these two would definitely need to hear about, and self-control, that is one of the great virtues that true Christianity produces in the individual. In fact, self-government is the watchword at the Chuella home. Self-government. And then judgment, something all men face. All will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So Felix became afraid. But rather than bow his knee to Christ, he ordered Paul to be sent away. We as Christ's ambassadors are to declare his law, word, and gospel. His law, his word, and his gospel. All of it. Not just part of it. As Jesus himself said, the Holy Spirit would, quote, convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Amen? These are the things Paul's talking to Felix and Drusilla about. No doubt Felix was convicted, but he hardened his heart and did not bow his knee, turn from his sin, and believe in Christ. Notice what it says at the end of verse 26 there. Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. He's hoping that he'll get a bribe from Paul and be able to then release him. And he also wants to sit and talk with him. There's something about it, isn't it? I don't know how many times I've talked with people who don't want to hear what I have to say about Christ and Christianity. I have to leave, and they follow you. (laughs) They want to keep talking about it, right? Felix wants to hear more. No doubt Paul instructed this magistrate in their many talks over the months, during their many discussions, including his duties as a magistrate in the sight of God. I believe that. I don't see Paul not doing that. Felix felt Paul had access to money and hoped Paul would bribe him for his release and freedom, perhaps because he saw the many visitors Paul had. So he thought, I had some money out of this guy. I read one scholar who thinks that um, Paul had this inheritance from his parents. And there is some historical evidence to that. Could have been that too. But anyways, didn't really matter to Felix. He, he wants to give money out of everybody. <laughs> so he's, he's a total politician. He maneuvers people how he wants to maneuver them. Get what he wants to get out of them. A Machiavellian to the core. So he wants to get money out of Paul so Paul can buy his freedom, right? But listen to this. A Christian man understands his life is in the Lord's hands whether he's bond or free. A Christian man understands he's in his Lord's hands whether he's bond or free. He's not moved by little bribes or money, you know, being bought. You know, they came out yesterday with the number one, the richest person in each state. Guess who's the richest person in our state? I already knew this. John Menard. $11.5 billion dollars. That right there, Matchwella will never go to Menards. Never put on a mask. He thinks he owns people. He runs with that crowd that views us as cattle. Human resources for their benefit. 
He's a dirty rat. And I hope someone sends him this sermon. And John, I hope you repent. Most of Christianity praises rich men. You know that? In fact, most of American Christianity has tons of sermons about how you can get rich, how God wants you to be rich. And yet when I read the scriptures, I see a lot of negative things about rich men and how they behave. And my life experience has been negative about rich men. So some people are like, oh no, Pastor Matt's going in his rich man thing. Yeah, it's because of what I've seen. It's like the movie Princess Bride, you know, where the guy says, I've known too many Spaniards. <laughs> right? It's like, I've known too many rich men. They think they want to own you. You should not be owned. And if you can be bought by either the state or a rich man, that's telling of how much character you lack as a man. Freedom should matter to you. His rule should matter to you. You know how many churchmen bow to the rich men in their churches because the rich men know they're, they're worthless and they're easy to buy off. I've watched it a hundred times. You know how many thousands of dollars I've lost because I didn't brown nose the rich men and go along with them owning me? A small fortune. And I don't regret it for one second. Because there's something wrong with people who want to be bought. Look at the churchmen of this city and of America. You know how many closed their churches because they wanted that federal money? They know all their people are still going to send in their little offerings and tithes, but they get all this tens of thousands of dollars from the federal government. We're a 501c3. They're whores! And the people like it that way, and they go week after week and listen to their worthless drivel. You understand this nation is worthy of his judgment, right? It is worthy of it. A Christian man understands his life is in the Lord's hands, whether he be bond or free. I remember when I was arrested in Bloomington, Illinois. I was looking there at only four years in prison. Actually, I was only looking at one year in prison. They wanted me to cut a deal and then, you know, keep your nose clean for a year. All I, I didn't do anything wrong. I won't go into the story. It's, it's an awesome story. <laughs> it's really, and it's an awesome story. And God's hand in it is incredible. But suffice it to say, they came to me when the trial was getting ready to start, and they said, so if you just, you know, plead guilty, keep your nose clean for a year, um, your one-year sentence will then expire. You won't have to do any day in jail. And then he said, and if you don't take the deal, we're adding three charges, and you're looking at four years in prison. That's very common. You understand. It's called getting people to admit guilt when they haven't been guilty. It's evil. I'm not sure how to fix it. I don't care what government, what judicial system you put together, man can pervert anything. He's wicked and in need of a savior. And I remember I looked at the prosecutor and I said, I did nothing wrong here. I said, your men did wrong here. 
And I'm a Christian man. And I know my life is in his hands, Christ's hands, whether I'm out here or whether I'm in jail. And I'm not pleading guilty. And they turned around and brought four, three more charges. I was looking at four years in prison at a three-day trial. And thanks be to God, I was found not guilty of all charges. Amen. Verse 27, it says, But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Left Paul bound. We do know historically why Felix was succeeded by Festus and recalled to Rome. He was replaced by Festus and recalled to Rome because during Paul's incarceration there in Caesarea, hostilities grew between the Greeks and the Jews during this time regarding who had preeminence regarding civil rights. The Greeks thought they should have the upper hand as they had the military support and the city was supposed to be a Gentile city. But the Jews thought they should have the upper hand as they were greater in number and possessed more wealth. Josephus, the historian, for those of you who don't know, I know I've referenced him a number of times. He's a contemporary historian of that time. Josephus tells us that Felix finally intervened with military retaliation against the Jews, killing many of them, taking others prisoner, and plundering their wealth. A delegation of prominent Jews then went to Rome to remonstrate with the emperor, and Felix was replaced by Festus and recalled to Rome by Nero. Nero had just taken over a short time before. We know nothing more of Felix's life after he was recalled to Rome. Nothing. We do not know if he ever became a Christian. Perhaps we will see him in heaven. Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe Paul's preaching bore fruit in that regard. Amen? Felix's final unjust action of many unjust actions was to leave Paul in bonds as a favor to the Jews, it says here. No doubt he was hoping this would make things go better when he arrived to see the emperor to answer for the accusations made by the Jews. They would hopefully be less tenacious in their desire to see him harmed by the emperor. No doubt that was in his mind. I want to close by simply saying this, and I'm almost done. Do you notice here that Christianity is in the middle of the affairs of men? Do you pick up on that? That it's not some silly sideshow off to the side of the culture? That it was in the heat of the fray? Good men cannot abide the soft form of American Christianity. They cannot. May we be faithful and true to him in the days ahead, brothers and sisters. May we be faithful and true to him. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer.